You are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by Win, women in innovation. In each episode, inspiring female innovators share stories of succeeding against the odds in a male-driven industry. Their experiences come from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and innovation departments in Fortune 500 companies. I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, brand strategy consultant and global marketing lead at Win. In today's win-win episode, I had the immense privilege of speaking to Danielle Lay, who is a principal at New Enterprise Associates, a very impressive venture capital firm. Danielle is the ultimate renaissance woman, originally moving to the States from Hong Kong and acting as both an operator and venture capitalist on her career trajectory thus far. After graduating from Northwestern University, Danielle was an investment banker at Goldman Sachs covering companies and asset managers such as FIS, NASDAQ, and Bridgewater. While living in Evanston and Chicago, she founded and operated a graphic design and web development marketplace called DesignWorks. For the last few years, Danielle's portfolio companies have included Glam Squad, Framebridge, Mode Operandi, Hello Alfred, and Desktop Metal, amongst others. In this episode, Danielle uses her experience to share all the various ways companies can innovate and the value that design brings to innovation. Through it all, Danielle gives out tips into getting into the space and shares her unique point of view about women in leadership. Hi, Danielle, and welcome to the Win-Win Podcast. We're so happy to have you here today. Thanks for having me. So before we dive in into your journey as principal at New Enterprise Associates, I wanted to know where did you grow up and how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career thus far? So I grew up in Hong Kong. Um, I was born in Taipei and we moved to Hong Kong when I was two. So pretty much all of my waking years before college were in Hong Kong. I'm not sure if you've been to Hong Kong, but it's a very it's a very cosmopolitan city. It's very diverse. It's a, a capital center in Asia and, and globally, really. I think without even really realizing it, I got some limited exposure to the business world kind of early on, in part from my parents, also in part because a lot of people that I grew up around, you know, everyone kind of had some tied to the financial industry, um, not necessarily through their career, but like it was it was kind of all around you because Hong Kong doesn't really export much other than financial services. And so I sometimes think back and wonder if that kind of primed my interest in finance, though I didn't really know what it was. So I think that and then the other thing I would say is it certainly created a lot of interest for me in companies and how their cultures define them. As an example, I, as you mentioned, I work at NEA. We look at, at a lot of companies globally. Uh, we're based, most of our team is based in the U.S. So, of course, we look at a lot of companies in the U.S., but companies that are outside of the U.S. in some ways fascinate me um, sometimes even more. So I think, I think that's a, a legacy of, of my upbringing abroad. So how did you get into venture capital in the first place? My career trajectory before venture was... Um, that I, I had started a company actually when I was in school. And this was before I knew anything about customer economics or what a successful organization looks like, or or actually even how to manage literally one other person because I was a student. And I started a company called DesignWorks, which we can talk about later, but it, it was essentially a web design and web development agency. And we were, you know, 
a handful of 20 year olds running around trying to get clients for this, this business. And I think it was really the first time I dipped my toes into something uh, so entrepreneurial. And it was the first time I felt how powerful and wonderful it was to build something. And so that, I think, was the first time I thought about venture capital. I frankly didn't, didn't know much about venture capital, but I thought I, I would like to be around people that do this. And I took a bit of a detour first. I went, I went to Goldman to do investment banking, um, which I think was an incredible place to start my formal career, if you will, um, because I wanted to learn what excellence looked like at scale. So I did that and then, um, you know, transitioned over to venture after my experience there. So we'll get into venture a little bit later. But in the meantime, uh, as you mentioned, you started a company called DesignWorks. It's a graphic design and web development marketplace. So what problem were you trying to solve when you started that? And, and how did that really come about? It's interesting. I actually think we ended up solving a supply side and demand side problem or a problem for, for both sides of the ecosystem, if you will. But um, we started actually with the supply side problem, which is that I had a lot of friends in school who were interested in graphic design who didn't have an outlet or a place to build a portfolio. And they wanted to maybe work in design or graphic design after college, but they didn't have clients and they didn't have a portfolio. So actually it was through that and thinking about, well, what opportunities could you create for these people? And realizing that there were all of these university affiliates, like large student groups or small businesses in the area. I went to Northwestern for undergrad. So in the Evanston or Chicago area that had really terrible um, branding and design and um, could use some help. And, and so that was actually how it started. And that was the problem that we were solving. And so generally speaking, what do you believe the role of design to be in innovation? Oh, I really like that question. I think design is critical. Design is critical in part because the definition of design has changed. People used to think of design just as like making things look nice and um, just something just something that's very aesthetic. But I think design actually is what creates our interaction with the product. And design is everywhere. It's it's you know an, it's an onboarding flow. It's the language that you use. It's everything that creates our interaction with a product or with an experience or, frankly, even with a person or a group of people. And that is critical in innovation because I'll say for two reasons. One, you can have design innovation, and that can be the source of innovation that makes a company because there are lots of different types of innovation. You can have technological innovation. You can have marketing-related innovation. You can have consumer experience innovation. And so you can just have a design innovation and that could make a com company successful. And you know, for a company that is uh, leveraging a type of innovation or creating a type of innovation that is not design innovation, um, say like a technological or marketing related innovation, the design can be the, the bridge to accessing that innovation for people. So I think, I think it's, it's critical and it's frankly uh, a really big part of what we look for is people who have good taste and who understand how to resonate. So thinking about innovation generally and how it's become a buzzword across many industries, how do you believe it can contribute to a company's success or failure? I think it plays a very core role in a company's trajectory. It plays a very core role, but it's not everything. 
that can be something, innovation can be something you build your company around. But there are lots of other things that you need to be successful in addition to the innovation. I'd say in order for innovation to be commercially successful, um, which ultimately is what we look for in companies to invest in, it has to have a meaning for someone that is using it. It has to accomplish something that matters to people and hopefully that matters to a sizable number of people, not just one or two people. So I would say typically, actually, in the companies that we see, innovation is at the core. And it's the challenge is not so much identifying innovation because it's you know when you see it, I think, in, in a lot of cases. The challenge is actually ensuring, or oftentimes, the, the challenge is actually ensuring that the market is ready for this type of innovation, that the market wants this type of innovation, and, and that the people that are harnessing this innovation and they're are creating it are also the right people. So what sorts of connections or correlations do you see between innovation and product market fit as you continue to evaluate these companies? Innovation does not necessitate product market fit. Product market fit doesn't necessitate innovation. In companies, what innovation does oftentimes is make that product market fit more defensible. It means that other people might not be able to replicate the product market fit that you found. And so in the companies that we look for, I think ultimately we want both. We want innovation and product market fit, but just because a company has one doesn't mean they have another. Are there any metrics of success that you attach to innovation or how do you measure it and and how do you assess it? It kind of depends on what industry you're in. And it also depends on what type type of innovation you're talking about. A technological innovation can be something like Desktop Metal, one of our portfolio companies just um, is about to go public through a SPAC. They have created a lot of technological innovation, which is actually in large part hardware innovation. So they also have software innovation um, and they do 3D metal printing, which has never been done at scale and has never been done before for end use industrial parts. So there has been a lot of technological innovation, a lot of patented technological innovation that has led them to that place. Um, you can also have companies that are really successful that, but that have a marketing-related innovation. So one example of a company with marketing-related innovation is um, Casper, the mattress company, also one of our portfolio companies. Casper was one of, if not the first, I believe, company to take over full New York subway cars. And that proved to be a really, really successful marketing mechanism for them and drove down their cost of acquisition very meaningfully in their early years. And that was that was also an innovation. I think depending on what type of innovation you're looking for or, or you're identifying in, a, in an opportunity or in a company, um, there are lots of different ways to measure it or look at it. But I think it's important to keep an open mind. If you're a venture capitalist, you're looking for good returns everywhere. There are lots of places that you can find good returns. And part of part of ensuring that you're you're continuing to make good returns over an extended period of time is keeping an open mind about the types of innovation that can happen. So what are some ways that you define value and enterprise value specifically when sifting through the companies? I think at the end of the day, we I mean we invest in lots of different types of companies. So th- there are definitely industry specific ways of looking at this. But ultimately, what you're looking for is 
a product that's differentiated that the market wants or maybe doesn't know it wants yet, but will eventually want. And the market can be a consumer. The market could be a business. The market could be, you know, a pharmaceutical company. It can be a whole variety of things. But a product that the market wants and if the market is big enough and that product is different enough and to use kind of the word of the day, innovative enough um, and defensible enough, then it should create a meaningful outcome. And I think that there are lots of ways to arrive at that. So that's kind of the broadest definition. But ultimately, you want product that creates real value in the world. And real value will create enterprise value for um, the stakeholders of the company. What's venture capital been like for you? How have you enjoyed your career in it thus far? What's it been like? I've loved it. I remember before I started, the first time I really heard about what a life of a venture capitalist would be like, um, it sounded really hectic, which it is, but it also sounded really fun. And I got off the phone with friend of a friend who was in venture capital who I, you know, I was I like had my notebook and we were on this call and I was taking notes about what venture capital was and what her life was like. And it, we ended the call with me saying, I can't believe someone pays you to do this every day. And she laughed and she said, I can't believe it either. Um, you know, fast forward to now, several years into my career in venture capital, I feel the same way, frankly. I, it's it's a lot more, I have a lot more context around why that's the case and why it's a good fit for me. But but I feel the same way. It's been incredible. I think for, for people who really love big ideas, who love building deep relationships with people, and also who are very intellectually curious and who love finding creative solutions to problems, venture capital is, it's like a playground of of work, it's uh, it's fascinating, and there are certainly challenges. I think when you get uh, when you, you start investing in companies, you build a portfolio of companies, you start developing really deep relationships with your portfolio company founders and management teams. You know, as I'm sure you know from your work and also from the other people who have been on this podcast, starting a company is not for the faint of heart. It's very very challenging. And if you think of all the challenges that a company faces and multiply it by, you know, 10 companies, maybe that you work with, there are a lot of problems. And um, that's just the life of being in the startup world. And so I think, you know, there's no shortage of difficult things. It's it's really a phenomenal career. And, and I feel very, very lucky to do it. What have been the challenges of getting into venture capital? And then I know you mentioned that when you were talking to somebody that somebody was actually a female. So do you have a lot of female mentors in this space? Um, And tell me a little bit more about all of that. Venture capital for as much uh, coverage it gets in the news and in popular media is actually not that big of an industry from just from a pure number of of investors um, and employees perspective. And so if you think about like the largest venture capital funds, for example, our, our latest fund is a $3.6 billion fund. The largest private equity funds are $60, $70 billion funds. And so for as much coverage as we get, fund sizes are more proportionate to the types of companies that we invest in, in terms of size. And as a consequence of that, I think as a consequence of that disparity between 
coverage and actual size or perceived size and actual size, there is a lot of interest for people to get into the venture capital industry. Um, so that, that can be a challenge. And, you know, how, how to get into the industry and how to think about that. I think if you have a differentiated perspective or if you have something to bring to a fund, um, it, it sounds very broad, but that's how you start. And what you bring can be a network. You know, if you, if you worked at a company and a lot of your former peers are spinning out to found companies, like that is a value add or an area of expertise. If you really understand insurance technology um, you know, maybe the, fu- the fund that you're looking to join really needs someone who- to cover that area. That's a value add. So there are different ways you can bring value, but I would think understand what value you can bring, hone that value, and then leverage it to find an opportunity. I wanted to ask you about female peers in the space and, and women that helped you get into the industry and advance in the industry. Yes. So um, I I did say she in that earlier anecdote. There are there are women in venture capital. There are not enough women in venture capital, especially at the senior levels. This is really well documented. Um, I think it's something that we're working on as an industry. And um, there are also not enough people of color. So that's um, especially uh, African-Americans and Latin Americans. So that's definitely something that's a focus in the industry as well. Um, I think finding finding allies and finding mentors, female mentors in the industry is, is super important. And it's also, it's really fun. You know, in finance in general, still there's still a disproportionate amount of men relative to women. The balance is still off. And so I grew up in, having grown up in finance, I feel like I've grown up in this environment where I don't expect there to be a lot of women around. And when you actually do get to work with other women and get to spend time with them, it's so fun. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to make a blanket statement about it, but there's a rapport and trust that's really nice and really helpful as you're navigating your career. So I'd say it's really important. I think part of what is so important about finding female mentors is seeing women, seeing people who are successful that look more like you and sound more like you is really, is really important. I think one of the biggest challenges and one of the most ingrained ones is that if you have, even if you have a room full of extremely aware and forward thinking, uh, forward thinking people, but the qualities associated with things like leadership and innovation are often only male qualities, that's a challenge that needs to be overcome. And this is, isn't is just a bias that men have. I think all of us have it. I think women have it too. We associate things like having a lower voice and standing a certain way and speaking in a certain way, in a male way, as indicators of being a leader or being an innovator. And it's because for our entire history, that's all we've known. And so most of the leaders that we have seen have been have been men. Uh, that, of course, doesn't make women any less capable, if not even more capable, at leadership. But women physiologically cannot replicate those features. And so I think seeing women who are senior be successful is important because when you're growing up in an industry, I think the male counterparts who maybe have lots of people to inspire and to look up to, 
um, can say like, oh, I really like the way this person did this. I really like the way they conduct themselves this way. Like you kind of find your style through those data points. And if, if there are no women for you to look up to, that can be a really challenging thing. So I think it's a big hurdle to be overcome. And women today still face a lot of these invisible challenges that we don't even recognize. But there's a lot more awareness around that now than there was even 10 years ago. So I think that's really positive. So you've clearly successfully maneuvered some of those challenges in your principles. So how are you able to progress in your career to continuously get promoted and take more of a leadership position? Well, I think I'm really lucky in that I work in a very uh, forward-thinking team. I think NEA as an organization is always thinking through how do we how do we be better? How do we how do we advance ourselves? How do we advance our thinking? And it helps because our job is thinking about the future, learning from the past, but thinking about what will resonate and playing a part in what will resonate in the future. So that certainly helps. But I think I think the organization itself has I have to give a lot of credit to the organization on all fronts, really. I think the other thing I'd say is something that I learned, probably one of the biggest lessons, how to be yourself and how to lean into being you. And it sounds trite, but I just, I can't tell you how much it's changed my life. And I think there are really practical work-related outcomes, positive work-related outcomes that come as a consequence of being yourself. Could you give an example? I feel like when we're, at least when I was a kid, and I think this probably applies to most people, we're just fully ourselves because we can't help it. We don't know how to be anything, anyone or anything else. And I, for example, was a total, I, I was a goofball growing up. I am um, ethnically Chinese, but I have really curly hair and I had these big cheeks. I had this big personality and I thought I was hilarious. And that was a big part of who I felt that I was. Then I think over time, the world challenges parts of you. You start shutting those, those, those parts out because to show your full self is a is to be vulnerable. And I was scared. Um, and so I didn't do that. This is just one example that came to mind, but I think that was the time when I started unlearning or I started learning that I couldn't be parts of myself. And a lot of it was actually self-reinforced. And over the course of the past few years, I've started to unlearn that and unlearning those behaviors of like shutting parts of yourself off is, I mean, it's really liberating. It feels really good, but it also, people know when you show up with confidence, but people also just know when you show up as you and a few things happen when you do that. It helps you connect with people better, which is really critical in the work that I do, but I think probably important in, in most people's work. People trust you more. So even if you don't have a very deep relationship with someone, they just have a sense that they probably, you know, they understand better who you are. Um, they want to work with you. They want to give you more responsibilities. And also you just expend less mental energy trying to be someone you're not. And so that was kind of revolutionary for me. So before I let you go, I did want to ask you one last innovation question. And that is, where do you see yourself and your industry in a month from now, in a year from now, and 10 years from now? So I hope in all three timeframes, 
that we've backed more and hired more people of color, more women, and people of other non-binary genders. I think that's a huge focus um, for the industry on the whole, and I really hope we can accomplish that. You know, one year from now, 10 years from now, and, and also one month from now, um, I hope I'm, you know, investing in exceptional companies at NEA. I hope we're finding and working with the leaders of the next decade in whatever field that they're in and creating critical change in those fields together and enabling that through our partnership. So that's what I'd like. Thank you so much for being here today. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.